Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. Thanks for tuning in today, episode 34. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, another week, man. Yep, another week, buddy. Another good week, and uh, excited to be here. Big show today. Yeah, man, we have uh, tons of stuff that we're gonna we're gonna be covering. Uh, you know, we're getting close to the holidays, so I figure uh, won't be much news coming out after you know Thanksgiving. So uh, I think we're uh, I think a lot of people are trying to get several things done before that before that break gets here. Yeah, Josh. Uh, you know, it's interesting. There there is some always some kind of news you just got to figure out what you're looking for but before we get into the show let's thank our sponsor which is FreshBooks which is the number one cloud accounting solution designed exclusively for small business owners who bill for their time go to globalenergymedia.com slash accounting so you can join the over 10 million businesses worldwide who use FreshBooks to make paperwork a breeze start your free 30-day trial by going to globalenergymedia.com slash accounting well, jumping right in, Ryan, uh, the first article we wanted to take a look at was uh, Perry's plan would subsidize coal and nuclear power. You know, this is something that's been uh, been discussed uh, for the past few months. Uh, they've, they've been talking about coal and nuclear power and, uh, and, and really trying to revamp the coal industry. Uh, just reading through the article, you know, uh, coal was, was a pretty big platform for Donald Trump, I believe, up in Pennsylvania when he, uh, last year during the election. Uh, what were some takeaways you had? You know, read through the articles, things that that really stood out to you. Yeah, you know, I think the first thing is that they kind of they kind of make fun of Perry is that um, that you know he's a free market guy, and then he gets to D.C. and all of a sudden he's not. And you know, it's one of those it's one of those things where you know you sit back and you go, that's kind of always the fear when you elect politicians is that they're not going to stay true to what they've done historically. And I think when you look at the coal industry, yeah, that was a big, uh, big, big platform for President Trump or President uh, candidate Trump at the time, I guess. But now, when you look at it, I think one of the things that I've kind of taken some heat for in the past is, you know, when we talk about solar or wind, I'm not big on the subsidies for those things. And the same thing applies here. I'm not big on the subsidies for coal and nuclear. I'm not big on energy subsidies in general. I think part of the problem when we look at these subsidies are um, – there's there's a couple reasons I'm not in favor of them. First is anytime you take money from the government, that's that's not yours. So I'm not talking about getting you tax credit, you know, back at the end of the year or whatever. I'm talking about they just give you money. And we're gonna talk about this actually in the next article. Um, there's an expectation that eventually develops. You know, if if if, if your next door neighbor starts giving you money and starts giving you money to so you can mow your grass, well, eventually he's gonna come over and say, hey. Uh, you know, can you go do this for me, or can you not do that? And that's the same thing with the federal government. So I'm always leery when we look at um, the federal government giving out money um, or, or you know, reducing tax or, or whatever the case may be in, in the case of a special interest. As we talked about on the show before, I'm not in favor of most taxes anyway. So if you're talking about lowering taxes, it's lower taxes. Well, that's okay. But just giving money um, and helping folks out so they can be profitable, especially talking about you know, in the marketplace. It, it, it makes the market where instead of people are competing to see which idea should work or which idea is best and which idea the consumer wants, it takes that away and saying the government says this idea should work and this idea is what we're going to promote. So, no, I'm not really a fan of that. We're talking about oil and gas, coal, nuclear or whatever and I, I, to be honest with you i think coal is in such a bad spot right now that this really won't do much to help it anyways 
Yeah, and just reading through the article, I believe his name's Borenstein, said uh, he, he wasn't buying all this uh, this talk from Perry. Uh, I think the, the, the gist of the article was Perry was a free market guy until he learned that uh, in case of a natural disaster, we needed coal as a backup if some of the, you know, some of our refineries went down or, uh, but the Borenstein, he says that all of this value in coal has been manufactured because somebody has some special interests in coal and the government, and they're using the government to give these subsidies to build these companies so that they can profit from it. Basically, um, it's the gist of, of what, what they're arguing for, which, you know, I'm with you. I, I think any any type of subsidy uh, that they're given to the it's just manufacturing a a value on the product that's not established by the free market. And I think long term, it's just not going to be a good play. Right. And, and a couple of things here, real quick. The EIA. I'll link to this in the show notes. The EIA has a chart um, from 2016 that talks about the energy. Uh, on the left side, it has the type of energy uh, source that we use. So we have petroleum, natural gas, coal, renewable, and nuclear. On the right side, it shows the sector that was used. In. So you got transportation, industrial, residential, and commercial, and electrical power. Um, and so coal made up 14. It was the third largest type of energy that we used, and it was 14.2, or I'm sorry, 15 percent. 15 percent is what we used uh, of all. You know, petroleum was number one at almost 37 percent. Uh, natural gas is at 29 percent. Coal was at 15, and then renewables at 10 and uh, nuclear is at eight, uh, nine. But anyways, coal, you know, a lot of that power goes towards electric power. Now, the, the, I think what's interesting here is, you know, um, I said I said a second ago, hey, I'm not for the subsidies. One of the things that, that you got to also balance out with that is, is part of the problem is is the government, while giving out subsidies, will make it harder for, the envir- uh, for these companies to work. So nuclear is very heavily regulated, which therefore makes it, makes it cost more to actually compete in the marketplace. So I want to make sure that we do kind of balance it out and say, well, we're not in favor of subsidies, but also, as we're about to talk about here in a second, you know, sometimes the government makes it more expensive for these people to do business. And, and if you don't believe me, you know, if you're in Texas right now, go and open up a business and see what it costs to open up a business. You know, you got to file with the Secretary of State. You got to get a lawyer usually to fill these documents out. Yeah, depending on what kind of industry you're in, you got to get some kind of uh, you know licensing board to approve you. That's just to get started. And most of what we're doing isn't really regulated by you know, the government on um, like like these industries are. So just imagine if you're trying to start a big industry. Uh, if you think back to a few weeks ago when Sergio was on. We talked about the frac sands and, you know, just kind of what you had to do there. And, you know, he said it's not really that regulated compared to other things. But there was several forms and reports you had to fill out. And I'm sure if you know the government, you, you know, it's not as easy as just downloading it and filling it out. You probably need some kind of lawyer to help you or, or you know, environmental specialist or whoever the case may be to help you kind of work through some of that stuff. So um, that is the other side of this. When you look at these storms and what goes on there, nuclear is a very viable and long-term solution. However, it struggles to compete in the marketplace, and one of the reasons is because the government over-regulates it and makes it more, uh, makes it cost more. So it's kind of weird to say, "Hey, we're going to subsidize you, but we're also going to make it make you your um, your cost to do business, you know, triple or quadruple or whatever the case may be." So I, I always find that kind of interesting. We're going to subsidize it, but also we're going to charge you more to do business. You know, if that, if that makes sense. Take our subsidy back on the back end. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. That's- well, um, moving over to that article you mentioned, Ryan, uh, you know, we've, we've been talking a little bit about the EPA, the EIA. Um, this one is an interesting article. Uh, Scott Pruitt just stripped the EPA's science boards in favor of industry council. Um, this was this was something. Uh, I mean, what did you think about this, Ryan? Yeah, first off, let me just say I do not know the author of this, um, of this article, so I'm not you – know, I, I, he may be a, a nice gentleman and all that, but I think he just completely – 
I don't know how to put it nicely, just whiffs here. Um, because, you know, the, the, the premise is that um, the, the article says that the new rule bars anyone who receives grant money from the EPA to serve as an, an advisory council for, for the agency's scientific decisions. And you know, Scott Pruitt apparently has said that there's a conflict of interest there. And the author points out, well, that they're not necessarily getting money. The, the, the researchers aren't getting money um, directly to their pocket so that the, there's not really a conflict of interest. And, and I, would, I think that that's kind of just the flaw in the thinking because if you're a researcher, Josh, yeah, you want to get a paycheck, but you've got to have something to research, right? And so there's kind of this illusion that we have in society that science is pure and there's no biases and that it always comes to the right conclusion. Let me tell you a little story. I was in Zambia. Uh, when did I go to Zambia? Two years ago, a year ago, whenever it was. About I was two years in, ago. Yeah, I was, in, ago. Okay. I was in Zambia. I was at this conference, and they were presenting all of this evidence of uh, you know, solar battery technology and really deep stuff, technical stuff. It's over my head, but you know, I could follow along with the basic kind of premises. And I, I talked to a professor there from, um, I won't say the university, but from a very prestigious university who came down for it. And we walked outside, and I said, hey, uh, man, some of the stuff they're saying, from what I know about batteries – which isn't a lot, but what I do know, it seems a little bit misleading. It seems like they're over, they're overselling the product here. And but I said, but they're quoting all these studies from the U.S. And here's what he told me. He told me a, he told me a story about him reading uh, an article one time about you know video games or whatever. And he goes, he got to the end, and at the end he goes, this was a very you know, so this is a Ph.D. level professor. He's at a very prestigious university, and he said he got to the end, and he he goes, wow, that was very convincing. And then at the end of it, it said, this study was paid for by PlayStation or Xbox or whoever. And he's like, oh, okay. Um, and so it, when you start to look at how studies are done and how research is done, you will find that a lot of times, and I think there's a statistic out there, like 70% of the time or something like that, that studies are found in the favor or the direction that, they're, that the company supplying the money or asking for the study to be done, it goes in the way that they want it to. Now, if if you just stop and think about that, 70% of the time they find in favor of the person who asked them to do the study. Well, that's just really weird, Josh, that, man, all those times I asked you to go see about this, and you guess what? <laughs> you found in favor of me. Well, yep. why is that? Well, you know, as a researcher, Josh, that if you find against me, that I'm not going to pay you to do anything anymore, probably. And so... This kind of illusion that the author points out, this kind of this kind of misnomer he puts out. Well, the scientists, you know, there there's no conflict of interest there. Yeah, there is. And then the the, the second point here, I don't, I'm I'm a little long winded, but the second point here is, just because you're a researcher and just because you're a scientist does not mean that you know how to fix the problem. And let me give you a good example, and our listeners, I hope, will appreciate this. If you've ever been on a job site, you know, whether you're putting a pipe in the ground or you're putting a, you know, drilling a well or whatever, how many times have you said, well, some engineer in the office engineered this, but they don't know what they're doing. And the principle there is, is that someone sat down with the, with the principles, the, the book, and they said, okay, this formula, this formula, sketch it out here, put it in AutoCAD and boom, there it goes. And then you get out to the field and it's like, "Ah, that was a good starting spot, but that doesn't work. It takes some cat in the field who's been out there 20 years and has seen everything to fix what the engineer you know, initially laid out. So the engineer had a spot, and it was to get to a certain point, and then the person in the field who actually is out there on the ground, they're the person who needs to actually make sure that that concept works. Same thing I think here is important. Let the researchers research. That's fine. But it does take industry people who understand business, who understand their, you know, what they're doing, 
doing to, to take those results and then to figure out how to navigate that stream. So I really think that the guy uh, probably has good intentions here, but I, I think he completely kind of misses a, a lot in this article. Yeah, that's, that's kind of my thoughts. Uh, just reading through it, thinking about uh, you know, what you mentioned, some of the scientific bias. You know, I, I'm aware of, uh, of, of a few studies that have been done in, in the past, uh, specifically studies that are done on um, fitness supplements where the fitness supplement is paying for a scientific uh, investigation to, to provide proof that the supplement works. Um, and a lot of them are skewed. You know, they're, they're basically sciences. They're painting a target around the arrow. You know, they're, right. they're, they, they already know what they want to hit, and they make the science back it up. Not really interested in finding the truth, just uh, satisfying the people who are, you know, filling their pocketbooks. And... And that's that's true in, in every industry. So there's no reason that science would be immune to such things. I know science at its best, possibly. But um, anyway, I, I think I think we covered that article pretty pretty well. We're going to link to well, that well, in the show notes. Yeah, there's and, several and, other things you could take a look at. And one final thing, real quick, Josh, on that is I would say that the the biggest proof of this is that this guy, the the author, comes in with a preconceived notion that industry people they can't be unbiased. So the fact that he believes that you can't be unbiased if you're an industry professional shows that we all have biases, and that's the yep. hard part. Whether it's me and you, we we have a bias when we read this article, right? We've, we've already said mm-hmm. it. This is our bias. We look at the article, and we see it this certain way, and we think that, wow, this is kind of silly what this guy said. That's our biases. He has the same thing. So to act like scientists across the world are not human, and they, they you know, we've talked about this uh, last week or a couple weeks ago. I, I don't remember when, but we talked about looking at the oil and gas market, looking at the price. There's there's so many factors you can bring in. You have to give some a certain amount of weight more than others. It's the same thing no matter what you do in life. And so we've we've really kind of, as a, as a, as a society, kind of painted science as this really pure thing that takes out human emotion and human error and all that stuff. And that's just not, that's just not true. Yeah, that's right. Well, Ryan, you know, we, we had a, a show that we did around the time of Hurricane Harvey, um, and we had talked a little bit about uh, some issues with uh, the, the gas prices being jacked up, water being jacked up, price gouging. Well, we have a follow-up article that we wanted to talk about today from the U.S. News. Uh, the state uh, has formally notified 127 gas stations that they were guilty of price gouging. And they could face uh, civil penalties up to $20,000 per violation and have to refund uh, folks for, for the gouges in the price. Uh, th- I thought this article was interesting. Uh, Ryan, I already know where you're going to land on it, I think. Um, you know, uh, personally, my, my opinion, and I see if you agree with me, is um, I, I really don't like the government getting involved um, in, in the price that these people can sell gas for. Um, I think that you know, these people are coming in and getting three, four hundred gallons of gas and emptying the gas stations out because they're afraid of what's about to come. Uh, I think there should be things put in place to prevent that, uh, which the, the the owners of the gas station should have that right, I think. Well, wh- where did you come in on this article, Ron? Yeah, and, and I know that you're, you've, we, we, we sound like probably going to say a lot of the same things, but we want to preface this to make sure we're being clear. We're not trying to be insensitive to the people who are trying to get out of you know the hurricane situation. So let's just so we don't want to be insensitive to that. We want to, but we want to talk about it in a broader context. So I want to start with where I live, which is just south of Fort Worth, 
okay, and I know I told you this story offline, Josh, but I tell it for the listeners. Um, there's no reason where we were that that, that pro- we live in a we live in a Hood County, if you know where it's at in Texas. It's got 55,000 people in the county. Nowhere near the hurricane. No, no, we didn't get any rain off of it. Um, and my wife was kind of. She goes, "Hey, what about this this um, you know, the gas shortage?" I said, "Ah, nothing to worry about." Well, guess what? Boom, boom, boom. A few days later, here we go. We, we have gas stations running out of gas. Now, we weren't going anywhere except for church on Sunday, and so we didn't need any gas for the weekend. But my wife's like, well, let me go fill up the car uh, Friday so we have enough you know, to get you know, get the church on Sunday and go do whatever we need to do the weekend. But we didn't need a full tank to go um, you know, to Oklahoma or something crazy. So just needed some gas just to piddle around town. So she gets up, and she goes to the gas station. On this is Friday morning before we recorded the show. There was a line of two or three cars, and the car next to her that she when she pulled up had a trailer with I don't know four or five six tanks of uh, you know those red tanks of gas to fill up. So he was mm. filling up tank after tank of gas. Now, what you were saying a minute ago is you got people like that who pull up, and if he wants to go buy the gas, I don't have a problem with it. And I don't have a problem with the owner of the establishment saying, sir, if you want to buy the gas, it's going to cost you this much a gallon. Now, where it gets a little tougher is, is we get as we get closer to the her, the, the impact zone, where people are at. This is where it gets tougher. Now, it, so we want to be careful here because, again, we're not trying to just – we know that people went through a really tough time, so that's that's tough. Here's the problem, and this is what we all have to think about. It, it, it kind of gets to a tough uh, – you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't almost. almost. If you leave the gas prices low – Okay. If you leave them low, what happens is people, the first people out, they get the most gas because they're going to have extra tanks on them. They're going to buy more gas because they can, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the last people out, they're going to be less likely to have gas because everyone in front of them bought it. Okay. Now, if you raise the gas price up, well, people can't afford as much gas because they don't have as much money. So the higher the price goes, the the more people can actually afford it um, because it will go longer. And now the, what's tough about this is, Josh, you go, man, you've got a family of six, they don't have a lot of money, and they can't afford $10 of gas, um, $10 a gallon of gas to get out of town. And that's tough, and I really don't have a good answer for that because you want those people to be able to get out. However, you don't want people, um, you know, who were three hours in line in front of them to take all the gas so they can't get out. And the only way to prevent that is by charging more prices or, and this might be something we want to look at, is the gas station owner come out and say, guess what? You can buy 20 gallons or 10 gallons or, or whatever. Right. And, and the gas station gallon own, cap. Right, yeah. the gallon cap. And now that would probably be a better solution if you do a gallon cap, you say, guess what? 10 gallons for you, 10 gallons for you, 10 gallons for you. You know, that would get you, you know, you know, anywhere from 100 to 300 miles or whatever, depending on how gas mileage you get. That, in Texas, that's a pretty good, you know, to the next big city or whatever. That might be the best solution for situations like this, especially by the impact zone. You just put a gallon cap that gets people out of there to somewhere else where they can buy more gas because they're not all going to the same place. That might be the best solution because then you're being, you're being concerned about the family of six who doesn't have the money. And we don't want to leave those people stranded. That's not what we want. Um, but, the, but it's kind of a hard thing to, to preserve the gas for them. So the gallon cap might be the best way to do that. Now, when you get to where I'm at and you've got folks who are just buying gas to buy gas, I really don't have a problem. You know, they're, they're, the family of six trying to get around out of the hurricane, that's not in play. I really don't have a problem with the, with the, with the gas station owner saying, hey, it's seven bucks a gallon because we did. We had three or four stations in our little town run out of gas because people went and filled up for, for nothing, for nothing. And so um, I think that's how I think about it. What do you think about that, Josh? 
Yeah, I, I like that, uh, especially the the you know the gallon cap doing something like that. And, and when we say they they went to fill up, what we're talking about is people just going in and, and trying to store enough gas to last for a month. You know, they're they're getting hundreds of gallons of gas that is is making it difficult for just right. everyday folks to go in and, and get a you know a regular tank of gas. Right. And not, I think not, it not, would not, be not hard your car up, right? Not yeah. You know, we're not saying just fill your car up. We're saying well, you fill your car up plus you know fifteen tanks of gas. 15, yeah, 15, 15 gallon tanks, you know, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I like, I like where you went with the gallon cap. If they could figure out a way to implement that, or, you know, you mentioned if somebody came in with a 300 gallon gas tank in the back, back of his truck and wanted to get it filled up, is there a way that you could identify that person and make them pay more for gas? Because I mean, how could you, it would be difficult to implement. That's what I'm thinking. Well, you know, Um, that, no, I I like that, Josh. I bet you could probably say it, you know, pump a, to to kind of like a prepay deal where okay. um you say different okay, gas caps right uh, yeah yeah, yeah. So like pump a, a if you want twenty gallons of gas here it is and then pump B it's unlimited but it's gonna cost you more um and so you know and then as 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 you see people come in you have the you know what you can do is you, you know as the gas station owner you can kind of figure out where your levels are at and you can go okay well look man people you know six bucks a gallon they're still draining this tank over here i might have to charge 10 bucks a gallon or, or the gas cap won't work but i think it's ideas like that when you think of there are people in this world and, and i want to be, be very clear about, about, clear about this there are people in this world who could care less about the family of six and they're just trying to make a buck and so i, I do know that that's out there there are people in this world too who go, "Holy cow, I'm going to be out of gas in an hour if I don't do something," and I got to figure out how to do it. Um, it's a very tough situation, and so I, I don't have the best answer. I do think the gas rationing, their gas cap, that way the government's not doing it; it's the business owner that's doing it. And here's the thing, Josh: if you come in and charge ten dollars a gallon for gas for everyone, if that's what you want to do, um, I don't think it should be against the law. But guess what's going to happen? You know that family of six who couldn't afford it. They're not buying gas from you ever again. So as a business owner, that's the risk you have to take. They're not going to buy your gas when it goes back to two bucks a gallon because you just you just hit them for ten bucks a gallon. They don't care about you know economics and all that stuff. And so as a business owner, when you do price gouge, if we want to use that term, you have to live with the consequences of that because it's the marketplace, right? And so you will potentially lose business. Because people go, I remember Josh, and that guy charged me 10 bucks a gallon. I ain't buying yep. gas from him ever again. So, yeah, you might have made a little money in the short term, but the long term, you might lose a ton of business because people, they're going to go, you know what, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to buy gas from him. So, so yeah, the government involvement, I think, is really what we're saying we want to push against. The market has a way to fix this, and as a community, we have ways to fix this. We just, we just you know, sit down and go, you know, can we ration it out a certain way? You know, and, and if you just stop and think about it, go, well, there's gas stations across the street from each other. Ryan and Josh. Josh is charging ten dollars a gallon, unlimited gas. Um, Ryan's charging, you know, whatever the market price is, two fifty or whatever a gallon. But he's only letting you get in ten gallons. Well, guess what? You know, if Ryan's a smart business owner, he's going to walk out there, shake people's hands, explain to them why they can only buy ten gallons or fifteen gallons or whatever the cap is, send them on their way. And when the storm's over. Yeah, Josh sold a lot of gas and made a lot more money. But folks are going to come back. They're going to they're going to be excited to come to my store because I handled it the right way. So there's ways to handle it. It's just getting the government out of that. That's really what. Uh, exactly. What, what we're, exactly. What we're, and that, that's that's the thing, you know. So that letting owners handle it themselves and letting the market determine who they want to use, uh, because like you said, the it, you know they may make a couple of dollars there, but long term the market's going to fix itself. Uh, these these folks are gonna they're gonna remember how these owners dealt with it and. You know, uh, stuff like that can can really 
if you get enough coverage on something, it can really put them out of business. If if you know enough people you know, get that get the wrong taste in their mouth. Hey, let me tell you something. If there's a Chick Fil A on the left side of the road and a Burger King on the right side of the road, I turn across the lane to go to Chick Fil A because I know I'm getting good quality customer service there. Burger That's King's right. a crapshoot, and so you know, I mean, and so we have real life examples like this that, that play out yep. in front of us all the time. And uh, I think that, I think that you know we don't see it because we're not going to these gas stations in these impacted areas. But I guarantee the locals there are going. You know what? I remember him. He charged ten dollars a gallon for gas. I'm not going back. And hey, guess what? Good for that person not to go back. I, I am. I mean, I'm. I applaud them for for that too. So I'm you know so I'm kind of agnostic on that part of the process. Let the market determine what should happen. Absolutely. Well, Ryan, we got uh, another article. Uh, you know, the the market's been looking up. Uh, things have been uh, moving in the right direction, and we have uh, an article here from. Uh, it's about the LPC. More competitive U.S. oil and gas lending drives down pricing. Uh, so the banks are starting to be more willing to disperse and dispense with some of their money uh, for some of these bigger deals. Um, is this something that we think is going to lead to some uh, major acquisitions in the, maybe the first quarter of 2018, Ryan? Yeah, maybe so. I think it's interesting. You know, on one on one week, we're talking about Wall Street pressuring to um, for companies to increase profit. In the next week, we see an article that they're, they're getting ready to open the pocketbooks up. We still haven't, I don't think everyone's hurt enough on the bad side of things to really go, okay, this is how we want to do it. And on that, Josh, one of the things um, we kind of skipped over last week was uh, if you look at some of these bigger companies, um, you know, we talked about, well, why are they operating this way? And it has to do with the decline of the whales. And so I'm not going to get into that today, but we, we did, I, I listened to the audio. I was like, ah, oh, we, we, we forgot to touch on that. But, anyways, um, I, I did want to point out, though, we do kind of piggybacking on two articles ago this whole bias thing. The same thing, I think, applies to these banks as well, Josh, because if you, re- if you look at this, it talks about J.B. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Bank of Oklahoma, and Texas Capital. Um, now, one of the things, if you go to like J.P. Morgan or Raymond James or Wells Fargo or you know, Goldman Sachs or whomever, you know, they will release these reports on these companies. And what I've always found interesting is if J.P. Morgan is loaning money to, um, um, to publicly traded company X, right, whose interest is it for publicly uh, traded company X stock to stay high? JP Morgan's, right? They want their money back plus interest. So I think one of the things that's interesting here is we're, the banking industry is trying to figure out how they're going to lend money to oil and gas. They're wanting, they're wanting to do it because they can get they can get those interest payments back, right? That's what we, that's what they want. They're there to make money. Um, but I would say just kind of a word of caution is as we go into 2018, just remember when you read reports from anyone, but especially companies like JP Morgan or Wells Fargo or, or whatever, if they have an investment in the company, it does tend to skew um, their outlook because they want it to be more positive than maybe it really is. But um, but no, it is it is. I thought it was just kind of comical that hey, last week it's Wall Street's putting pressure on them to. Uh, to uh, tighten up their budgets and make more, and then now we're seeing, hey, guess what? Well, uh, we might be looking to lend a little bit more money as we go to 2018. And, of course, that all has to do with the, with the climbing price. So Yeah. Well, I think you called that last week, Ryan, when uh, we did that Wall Street. You said you're, you're going to be interested to see kind of the changes that come as everything looks up, if they're maybe they're going to go back to their old model of, you know, buy and, and expand and grow. Uh, so it didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get, I, I'll take credit for that one. I got a lot I've missed, but I'll take, I'll take credit for that one for now at least. 
Well, uh, moving on, we have, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, about Mexico's need for, for energy and the oil and gas demand that they have and how certain companies in the U.S. are trying to supply that. So we have we have beat that in the ground. Uh, but we have an article here where um, there, it, the title of the article is a Mexican standoff for Texas, Texas's power producers. Um, and there are some attempts uh, right now to build refineries and um, develop some things to supply that in Texas. So we, we have this uh, this article here, Ryan. Did you have any any specific takeaways that we haven't covered in the in the last few weeks? Um, I think that you know, one of the things I saw was, was funny was it said gas exports and pipelines crossing from Texas to Mexico have more than tripled since 2012. And uh, we talked about you know projects that are going and ongoing and have happened, but I didn't realize it has tripled since 2012, which is a lot. Um, on top of that, you know, one of the things we talked about on the show before is this idea of maybe the Eagleford sending down gas to the uh, to Mexico, but here is is talking about Permian, and that's going to be interesting to, to to see how it plays out because while you do have overlap from Permian producers to Eagleford producers, obviously you don't. There there are a lot of producers who aren't evenly positioned in these plays, and so it's going to be interesting to see how these two plays compete with each other to get gas to Mexico. I think sometimes well, we talked early on the show about this idea of the Permian versus OPEC. Well, it's not like that. It's you know it, we're we're a, a market society, so it is going to be interesting to see that if the Permian makes this big push to sell gas to Mexico, which makes sense, you know how will the Eagleford compete with that? Because the the the, the margins in the Eagleford aren't nearly as good as the Permian. We know that. Um, so being able for them to sell gas to Mexico makes a lot of sense. Uh, the Permian it does just as well, but. We kind of thought maybe with um, the, like the Epic line and some other stuff that's going on, maybe the Permian was going to take its gas and send it somewhere else while the Eagleford focused on Mexico. And it, it looks like that might be shifting a, a little bit more than I, I had realized. Well, uh, one of the comments in the article, I want to get your opinion on this, Ryan. It says that they don't believe that the demand in Mexico will be able to meet the supply of the Permian in terms of gas, in terms of natural gas. Um, any opinion on that or is that something that's just kind of outside of our wheelhouse? Well, I mean, you know, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, when you look at the demand charts, they're, they're, it's okay. So think about this, Josh. If we go out to a tank farm tomorrow um, and we can measure how much, you know, oil's in a, in a tank, and we go out the next week, we measure it, we, we can see how much oil is being used in that tank, right? We can measure that. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can measure the supply inventory very easily. The demand side of that isn't as easy to figure out. Because the demand's based on a lot of factors. Um, so if an economy is growing, the demand for oil and gas and you know energy supplies is going to grow up. If the economy shrinks, well, it's going to taper off. Well, so you, you you say, well, is the you know is the demand for Permian gas going to be there? Well, there's a ton of Permian gas, so probably not. Um, but but it's kind of it's kind of one of those things. It's it's hard to measure uh, the demand. What if um, the Mexican economy really takes off and booms? Well, okay, well, then maybe it might catch up. But I think one of the things is when you look at the Mexican economy, obviously you kind of have what's going on now with the day-to-day living, but also, as we talked on the show several times now, there's this going to be this effort to, to build out infrastructure so that they can drill some of these wells and build some of these pipelines that we talked about on the show. So how do you measure that in terms of future demand? And is it enough to make a dent? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, I think... I, I, I do think that you could kind of say, well, probably it won't meet the Permian demand, but there's just a ton of gas in the Permian. So um, so it's kind of an easy way to say that, but when you look at just meeting demand in general, um, it's, it's a little bit harder to calculate that. Yeah, you know, it, you, you mentioned that, and 
one thing you see in politics, and we're doing this, some of this tax reform, it's kind of all over the news. They're talking about if they lower the taxes, that there's going to create a deficit that's going to cause us to go deeper in debt. One of the things they don't factor in is the amount of businesses that are going to come from out of country and come into the country and therefore increase the GDP. So they look at it and say, assuming that X amount of companies are, in the, are, in, are here, if we lower the taxes, we make less money. They can't factor in how many companies are actually going to come back to the United States so that those numbers actually don't they don't tell the the whole truth. So uh, and I think I think that kind of lines up with what you're saying about the demand. I mean, if if a place like Mexico, if they're developing, uh, there are developing cities, the demand could be if the supplies there, the demand could increase as these cities develop. And there's no way for us to really project that. anticipate right. yeah you can't project you know that right. those those needs well uh moving on right we have a article uh lane christensen to drill water wells for oil production uh i think we no I, we had talked about this offline a little bit uh but there are some areas around the permian that needed water uh to do some of these this fracking and, and do some of this drilling to get some of this oil out uh, it looks like they're going to develop eighty-eight thousand acres in reeves and Culberson counties in the active Delaware Basin portion of the Permian Basin. Uh, so it's a, a pretty massive uh, project they're undertaking, and it looks like uh, it looks like they're going to be breaking ground on that. Does it have the date when they're going to be breaking that, Ryan? Um, I don't know if I caught the date. It's, it's it's a five year. I think it's a five year deal, if I remember correctly. Uh, they're going to start maybe in the next month or so. Uh, but I think here's the thing, Josh. There, as you mentioned, we were talking offline. There is, you know, there is a big needs for water, especially in area I mean, like the Permian, and especially areas just like Midland or um, Odessa. Just just in general, I remember, um, you know, several years ago, my father-in-law was out working on a project to build a pipeline to send this water to the folks of uh, Midland or Odessa. I can't remember one, just because they need they need water out there. Um, I'm not a expert on what the water management uh, resources are in that area, but there is a need for water, and especially when you start drilling all these wells, you know, you you you, you know, your water consumption goes way up. So it's interesting. The folks from um, from Lane had talked about coming on the show one time. I'm not sure. Whatever happened to that, might need to reach back out to them. But this is a good sign. We need this. We need the water to be developed. We need, um, hopefully, some of these deals will also lead to getting water to the people of Midland Odessa. Not that there's, I don't think there's no, there's no water shortage or anything, but I do know, know there was plans at one time to build maybe two or three more lines to that area. So I was encouraged to see this because uh, it is a need for that area. Yep. Yep. I, I was, uh, it, it was interesting to see some of the developments that they have. Uh, so we'll, we'll be keeping up with some of this. I'll, I'll try to, put out some uh, some feelers, try to keep up with anything that goes on. Well, Ryan, we have two uh, small mentions that we wanted to uh, to hit. Um, Driftwood Energy Partners, LLC, announces partnership with Carnelian Energy Capital. Uh, this is a Houston-based company uh, partnering with Carnelian Energy. Uh, we're going to link this in the show notes. This, is, this would be something interesting to see what kind of projects they have uh, expected uh, in the next you know quarter or so. And another one, Ryan, we've been talking a little bit about MX. Um, they have been developing a refinery that's going to be uh, running through the Permian or in the Permian. And uh, they've, been, they've been working on it. I believe they're supposed to break ground on that next month. Is that right, Ryan? Yeah, getting ready to break on that next month. Now, this article came out on October 23rd. So that, I'm guessing that means 
November. Um, no, yeah, so this technically month, yeah. this, yeah, it's kind of what we're, when you kind of cross, cross over that month threshold, it's kind of hard to figure out, but I'm guessing any day now, then if that, if that's how we're reading the article. Yep. Yep. So, uh, you know, this is the one that we talked about a little bit with the the railroad track, uh, the train, uh, train tracks. So they're, they're going to be following a, a particular area there. Uh, but we've been, we follow, we've been following this for quite some time. So it looks like they're going to be breaking, breaking ground any day now. Yeah. And good for them. If you remember way back when we talked about it, they had these plans and then I think we had Sergio on and said they had to revamp their plans. But anyways, it's good to see that they are finally, hopefully uh, going to start on this, I guess, any day now. So uh, kudos to those guys. Last one, Ryan. Uh, Hainesville Eagleford, hold steady. We have an article from Heart Energy. Um, this article is going over some of the Eagleford projections and some of the advances that it's been making. We've talked a little bit about it last week. We mentioned the uh, the natural gas uh, being a little bit more concentrated and the, the oil yields decreasing in the Eagleford. Um, this one, this article, the, the major thing that I wanted to, to focus on was a, a great chart they have in with uh, the top, I believe, 20 operators in the Eagleford. Um, you know, we've we mentioned a few of these, uh, but we wanted to at least link this here in the show notes. But uh, I believe the biggest one was EOG Resources. They had 13% of, uh, of the production in the Eagleford. And then you have uh, Chesapeake, uh, Devon Energy, Sanchez, Marathon. As you looked over this, Ryan, you, you think about jobs, you think about what opportunities are going to be coming up uh, available in the Eagleford. Any things that you notice that kind of stand out to you? Yeah, I love a chart like this, Josh. Uh, this is this is kind of you know what, what you dream about, and here's why: two things. One, you're going to take the if, if it's me, I'm going to take these charts and I'm going to go look up EOG's third quarter's earnings, and I'm going to see what are they saying right now. I'm going to take Chesapeake, Devon, Sanchez, Marathon, Conoco, all twenty that I can find on here, and I'm going to take that and I'm going to go look up the third quarter. I'm going to hear what they're saying about what they're going to do for the fourth quarter, so I know okay. You know, if I'm going to go as a business development strategy, you know, what am I going to do with these companies? Am I going to go per, per, uh, if I'm going to go uh, pursue aggressively, or am I going to go kind of just you know leave them, uh, maybe you know maybe stop by once in the fourth quarter, but not really work on it because it, like we talked about last week, ConocoPhillips announced they're going to reduce their budget towards the end of the year by 10. percent So so a chart like this not only does it tell me who's working down there. When you time that with where we're at in the market right now, I can go and I can I can look up and see what these companies are saying they're going to do for their fourth quarter. Um, then I'm going to bookmark this chart and then come back and reevaluate it again at the end of the year to see what they're saying for you know their 2018 budget. So something like this, I mean, there's a ton of value here. Um, there's you know these aren't all publicly traded companies, obviously, but a lot of them are, and it gives you a great starting spot. Just if you didn't go look up the the um, the, the, the third quarter filings, if nothing else, you've got a list of the top 20 companies you know of who's drilling um, in your area. So I think I love these kind of charts. I love this kind of information, um, and then from there, just you know, just kind of piggyback on that. Once I figured out you know what are these companies doing, then the next question is. You know, kind of simple for me and what I do in the industry is okay. Well, who's building the pipelines for these guys? Are they building themselves, or are they 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 contracting out a third party? And if I know, for instance, that let's just say Sanchez Energy, if I know that Sanchez Energy is reporting that they're going to increase their budget for 2018, then that means that they're probably going to increase the pipelines that they need in the area. So if I can figure out who's laying pipe, who's laying pipe for Sanchez Energy. Um, 
you know, guess what? I've got two chances to capitalize on work. A, Sanchez Energy, if they're going to increase their budget, uh, they're going to drill more wells. Well, guess what? They might need uh, more service providers in what I do. And then the pipeline company, if they're going to be building more pipelines, they might need more service providers as well. So I love charts like this. It's just a very great start. It's a very good starting spot to figure out how to go into mine information and how to look for it. So uh, great, great stuff here. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we're gonna link. Uh, we're gonna link this chart in the uh, this article in the in the show notes. Ryan, we like to finish everything off uh, with a look at the rig count. Uh, pulling this from Drilling well, Info. Hey, hey Josh, we, sh- got, we got one more. We're gonna link to real quick in the show notes. We're gonna link to Sergio's article, which is the weekly drilling permit roundup as well. So uh, we'll link to that as well, which gives you kind of more of a snapshot of what's going on in the Eagleford for the past week. In the Eagleford, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, the uh, the drilling info uh, that we pull the rig count from shows that we're down 1% at 1,001. Uh, so for the last four weeks, we've been hovering uh, a little bit below and a little bit above 1,000 rigs. So uh, it's holding strong, looks good. Um, and uh, Ryan, any, anything, that, any events coming up that uh, you want to mention before we... Yeah, yeah. So if you're out in Midland, um, the Doug Midland Conference, I don't remember the name, but it's... Um, the uh, the permanent executive or something like that. You can go to the Hard Energy folks website and figure that out. But it's it's uh, Monday and Tuesday this week. But I will be in Houston for the America First Energy Conference on November the 9th, which is put on by the Heartland Institute. And so I will be there, which is at the JW Marriott Galleria in Houston, Texas. So I will be there. We will link to that in the show notes as well. And Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke We'll be doing the keynote and closing ceremonies, I think. And so it is an all-day, I think we talked about last week, it's a double Red Bull. Actually, I thought about maybe a triple Red Bull kind of day. It's a, it's a full day, wall-to-wall. Um, but anyway, so it will. Um, I will be there for some, if not all of that. So if you're in Houston and you're curious about the America First energy policy, how President Trump has done compared to what he's promised, that's exactly what they're going to discuss. So it should be interesting um, and so I'm looking forward to that. And then one final thing, Josh, before we get off here, is uh, we have David Blackman on from time to time, and he will be back on again soon. But me and him have a show, which is Energy Week. It comes out on Mondays. And so if you're interested in just kind of a broader discussion of things, kind of like we talked about at the beginning of the show, we talk about more um, you know, U.S.-type-based topics and things like that, be sure to check that out. And one final thing, just a reminder for uh, our sponsor, FreshBooks. If you're interested in signing up for your free 30-day trial, you can do that by going to globalenergymedia.com slash accounting. And until next time, keep climbing. Mm-hmm.